Thanks for downloading this episode of Cork Talk with me, Tim Atkin. A weekly conversation with some of the most famous people in the world of wine. This podcast is brought to you in partnership with Nomacork by Vinventions. Driven by a commitment to innovation, the new plant-based Nomacork Green Line offers significant improvements in wine closure performance. Thanks to a rigorous oxygen ingress rate, you can decide which cork is best for your wine, whether it's for young and fresh wines or for those with ageing potential. Mac Forbes is one of Australia's most thoughtful winemakers, a man who lives and breathes his native Yarra Valley. I caught up with him during Vintage to chat about his formative time in Europe, his love of Pinot Noir, Chardonnay and Riesling, his respect for Aboriginal culture, his relationship with old vines and why winemaking is about more than ticking boxes. Hey, Mac, how are you? Very well, Tim. How are you? I'm really, really well. Lovely to hear your voice. And I'm, especially you're in the middle of vintage, aren't you? So, Yes, you've um, really done me a favour here at nine o'clock at night, jumping on for a quick chat. So, no, it's a, it's actually a great time to be talking because it's all obviously pretty uh, pretty intense and the energy levels are, um, well, high and low at the same time. And you've been busy picking today, haven't you? Yeah, we... Um, Oh, we got a massive 200 kilos of Merlot in today, um, an, an old dry farm vineyard that had three rows of Merlot on rootstock, and when we got phylloxera in that vineyard, we lost everything, and it's a three lonely rows that remain. So out of love and, and um, probably an emotional necessity, we still go out and pick it. I like that. And you're in the Yarra Valley, which is where you were born and brought up, yeah? Um, and I read somewhere your parents were ardent wine drinkers. Did they pass the love on to you as a kid? Yes, but it's being paid back in space right now. I uh, I get the regular text from Dad saying, look, Mum's not very happy. We uh, we need to, to get a delivery. So, um, yeah, look, I think I, I love reflecting on what Australian wine you know, consumption has looked like. And for a long time, it was pretty rough and ready. And um, But my grandfather, who was a medico, he had a pretty extensive cellar and it was probably all the things that were replicated around the country with, you know, a lot of fine Bordeaux and, and a little bit of Burgundy and then a lot of Penfolds and Wins Coonawara and, and those sorts of wines. So um, that was passed on to Dad and uh, I guess... By default, I, I sort of was always introduced to cooking around the table with a bottle of wine. And did you drink wine as a kid then? You did, by the sounds of it. I was curious. I think um, realising that bag in box was sort of a week weeknight drink and uh, Dad would often come home as a vet after a long day and he'd take the ingredients that us kids would have to eat that was pretty bland and he'd go to work cooking, but he'd also then pull a cork. And I think about how much we just gravitate now to a kitchen and you've got the, yeah. the dining table there and how much yeah. we enjoy standing around a kitchen watching people cook and, and having a glass. And that was definitely how I was introduced to wine. Which is quite unusual then, wasn't it? Yeah, probably. I think there was certainly a lot of meat and three veg, overcooked vegetables and um, probably not understanding where food and wine fully sat, but I think even looking at the cuisines that came through with our sort of cultural diversity, Japanese food, a lot of Asian cuisine that came in, and that had, a, I think, a, a huge shift in what we were drinking. And what was the Aussie wine scene like in those days? Was it still fortified 
focused or it was changing by the time you, I mean, you're much younger than I am. So it probably started to change by then, didn't it? I, I'm young enough or old enough to, I mean, I'm nearly 50 now, but I remember when Shandon first came to the Yarra in the early 80s and um, there was excitement in the region. I think it had been a few um, a few medicos had really been responsible for the modern history and that was started in the late 60s, early 70s, um, really probably trying to set out to prove that fine wine could be a thing here or at least wine could be a, a thing in the Yarra. So once we got over that first hurdle to then recognise an overseas, you know, um, wine business like Shandon would, would actually want to come to the Yarra Valley was a pretty big statement and something that had a ripple effect for sure and it definitely led to increased plantings around the Yarra Valley, which we're still benefiting from today. And you have this French link because like many Aussies, you went off as a backpacker and you ended up getting a job in Gayak, didn't you, picking grapes? Yes. I just wondered, you know, how, how transformative was that? Was it just a way to earn some cash or what? Yeah, I'm, I'm still not sure. <laughs> I, I don't think there was ever this amazing epiphany. I'm so jealous of these people that have said, you know, they, they had no connection with wine and then this moment, you know, confronted them. I just ran out of money and Dad's cousin, who was Irish, had married a Frenchie and uh, had a really, really basic operation there. So I sort of nearly died of CO2 poisoning and I electrocuted myself a couple of times and it was pretty exciting. And But I actually think the most formative thing there, which is still something we grapple with now with current employment, was that we sat around the table for lunch and dinner and it was people yeah. from all over Europe. And... I like to think it's because I was Australian and pretty ignorant, but it was it was that was the most powerful part, this exchange. And I still think it's the most powerful thing that wine offers. It's interesting how that's sort of running through your story, this idea of, of food and wine and sharing. Because I think you still do that at the winery, don't you? Yeah, we we work really hard to not just go down that path of everyone takes a half an hour lunch break, that we actually stop. Mm every wine served blind, but we talk. And, you, you know, we're back to now after the last few years, we've got this great influx of overseas workers who are just hungry and, and curious and the questions they pose help us in our path. But I know that, you know, for a lot of them, they go home and feel that it's it's certainly given them an opportunity to better understand their backyard as well. And, uh, you know, I, I do think this mirror effect and perspective, it's probably what the world lacks in general at times, but mm. it's one thing that wine does so well. Mm, I agree. I mean, you went back to Australia after your travels, initially studied science and commerce, and then you switched to winemaking. I think your parents kind of pushed you a bit towards it, didn't they? I mean, what took you so long? <laughs> yeah, it took a, took a while. It's probably because they were pushing so hard. You never want to do what your parents are advising you to do so um yeah i think just the industry and i still come back to it the industry is so fantastically dynamic that it caters for so many backgrounds and interests so i wasn't sure where i'd end up and maybe you know i'm still not fully sure but i think um it invites people to come in and find a, a place at the table really and um gee that's not many industries can offer that Mm. Yeah, I think it's true. Isn't it? I mean, you worked at Mount Mary after that for a while, didn't you? When you graduated with the legendary Dr. John Middleton, who's a friend of your parents, another doctor, obviously. I just wondered how important an influence he was on you. Yeah, we've, uh, in fact, we were talking about it tonight over dinner um, because it was such a critical time, I think, looking back on the industry. 
I definitely didn't deserve the job. I was straight out of university. And, um, but I, I was very respectful to what John had already put into place. And mm. I think trends in the industry are so fascinating and how we grapple with it. But the Australian industry in particular, I think, had been set up so well to look at what the consumer wants. How do we demystify wine? Let's put the grape on the label. Let's, let's make it really accessible. And I think that was incredible. But part of the, the, you know, I guess the fallback of that was that we started to over-consider the end product and forgot a little bit about where it all began. And mm. the great thing about John was he said, we just, we, let's stay in our bubble. Let's not get worried about 100% new oak, 14%, you know, alcohol wines that are getting all the gongs. Let's just do what's right for the vineyard what's in balance, what's in the capacity of the land and the, the plants that we're putting here, and let's just do it as well as we can. And so if you ever needed sort of that moment of, um, I guess, one of the cornerstones for me of, of what this industry is, is the trends come and go, but if you do it properly and you're really looking at what's in front of you, you know, you're going to be okay. Mm. I mean, your next job after that was working for Southcorp, as it was then in Europe, which I think was where I met you. Um, what what were you doing there? Because you were doing a bit of winemaking, you were doing a bit of consultancy. What, what was it? What was your job? Did you know? I was having a bloody great time. Um, <laughs> I had no idea. I just knew it was the enemy, and I'd gone from the micro operation of of John. Um, but I knew that I had to see a little bit more. I either was going to get, you know, really fixated and, and remain in this bubble and maybe not appreciate just how diverse the industry could be or I could get on a plane and go and see the other end of the spectrum. And, um, you know, I think in the first month I'd been to Malta and Moscow and I'd seen a huge array of places that I just wouldn't have got to see. So it was a huge amount of fun. There was some technical work. There was uh, Philip Shaw, who, who was uh, Rosemount and had just come into the fold with the sort of reverse acquisition of Rosemount and Southcourt. Um, saw a lot of cultural challenges. I saw a lot of market challenges. I, I realised that Australia was so pigeonholed into this style of wine and I could see the glazed look over consumers, uh, you know, past their, their eyes as you're serving another Shiraz and the frustration of this country is so diverse and dynamic that we haven't really even internally recognised it, let alone got to the point where we're able to share it with others. And so that probably burned a pretty significant fire for me that, you know, still burns pretty strongly today. Yeah, and, and you did winemaking since in Austria, which is important because you sort of fell in love with Riesling. Portugal, where you obviously met Dirk Nieport, who's appeared on this podcast, great wine figure around the world. W w was Dirk an important inspiration as well? Yes, he, yeah, he was. He, he um, I mean, both his sons have come and worked with me and this lovely loop continues to, to run around. But um, he... I think travelling around the Douro and looking at north-facing vineyards for freshness and balance when the south-facing were just looking a little bit warm, realising we'd been trapped by this idea of copying so much that we were, you know, trying to identify within Bordeaux or in Burgundy when we're planting Cabernet or Pinot, mm. thinking, gee, we've actually got to zoom out and look at what it is that makes us unique and what our challenges are and stop worrying about these other regions. So... Mm. Um, some of the old field blends 
and his frustrations at the time with looking at old vineyards that were being ripped out that had all this character to have these monovarietal, you know, terribly piss-boring wines, as I think we described them at the time. <laughs> and it was just this shake that I needed, that there is so much to go home to and re-examine. And, you know, it was it was a pretty big impetus for me to to book the flight and get back here. Well, I mean, very self-confident. You set up Mac Forbes Wines in 2005. I mean, did you have a vision when you started? I mean, was it partly influenced by the stuff you've just been talking about? Yeah, I think the initial um, business model and, and structure is pretty close to what it is now. But I wouldn't say it was confident. I mean, yes, I, you don't start a business without feeling confident. But I look at that sort of chapter around 2002 to late 2000s, every small winery operation that commenced was labelled by the person behind it. So from a domestic point of view, we were really conscious that we were trying to differentiate from the big big companies and Mm -hmm. just another brand. Mm -hmm. And so, yes, there would have been some ego and some confidence around it, um, but there was a, a sense that we were returning to our roots and getting back to some really fundamental farming and, and winemaking and not just another concocted brand by a marketer yeah. based in a head office in Sydney. Yeah, with a, with a kangaroo on the label or a yeah. koala or something. Yeah, yeah, interesting. I mean, it's interesting, you obviously went back to the Yarra Valley, it's where you're from, it's what you knew, it's your home really. For people listening to the podcast who might not know of the Yarra Valley, can you just tell us a little bit more about the terroir, the climate, because it's pretty varied, isn't it? Yeah, it's a Given it was a backyard that I grew up in, I really had no understanding of it and I probably for a long time wished it was something different. It was uh, a long way removed from anything that I identified with when I travelled to Europe in terms of soils, the, the age of the soils, the origin of the soils. And I think, yeah, I think it was a long time before the complexity of the Yarra presented as an opportunity and not a hindrance or an Achilles heel. So Mm. I came back probably more out of a sense of obligation and loyalty rather than um, wonder and and excitement. And then it it, it transformed pretty quickly. And I think recognising that these really ancient soils, which had been long criticised, I must say, all of a sudden did offer a framework for fruit to retain structure and freshness which is something i think with you know from a future proofing point of view is really critical appreciating that there's a history on the land here of now going back sixty thousand years and and when we talk to the elders the indigenous elders here the way that they've coped with climate change and how important the soils and and the nuance of this region offers is quite remarkable so it's a complex region multiple soil types um, we've got mountains that go up to 1,300 metres, UV and solar radiation levels that change dramatically. There's so many factors that it's hard to simplify, but it presents a huge amount of opportunity to cope in a farming environment when things are potentially going to get more challenging. And, and how close to Melbourne are you? We're about an hour east, northeast of Melbourne. Um, so we've got a, a little bit of a challenge of encroaching um you know, the encroaching development out of Melbourne, especially after the last couple of years, people are obviously looking to to get out of the city. So we've got a, a few challenges here, but um, it's, yeah, there's still some very remote little pockets where um, 
very few people live huge swathes of forest and, and national park. So it's a it's a really exciting area to come and not a place, if you haven't been out here, it, the number of people who arrive and say, well, I was travelling to Australia, I did not expect to see green mountains, green pastures. It's um, It sits in a little bit of a, a middle ground from, you know, for people's expectations. And, and how cool is it in, in, in cool climate terms? And is it like Burgundy? Uh, well, Burgundy's probably a bit hotter than us at the moment. Especially I think now. <laughs> exactly. Look, I think we're inland enough that we get some continental influence. We do get some southerly uh, ocean winds that help moderate. We had snow in the middle of January, which is obviously um, summer here. We had a little bit of snow, uh, so what, just about six or eight weeks ago. Um, it can be very, very cold here but we can get up to 40 degrees in summer, which we really haven't had for a few years, which means we're probably due for it soon. Just tell us a little bit about your approach to farming, because are you totally organic now? You've certainly been close, haven't you? Yeah. It's a big internal conversation for us, because a lot of what we do is driven by what we believe rather than trying to tick a box. And so this year we had the wettest spring we've had in, you know, 12 years or whatever. So there were huge, we, we lost a couple of vineyards in terms of downy mildew and uh, just not being able to get in and spray. So we did um, put out in, in a couple of vineyards, um, non-certified sprays this year, one in two vineyards, one spray in two vineyards. So we're trying to strike the right balance, but we haven't used herbicide uh, for years. We do our own compost teas, biochar. We, you know, we're probably 90s, nine percent organic but i think that's a really small part of what we see as our responsibility in the way we engage with the land here and um you know things like water use i'd say if you had to summarize what we do we've just gone back to really old old-fashioned farming and yeah. um it's really reassuring we've seen the way plants regulate differently if you're not not irrigating mm-hmm. all of a sudden a few years later they're actually growing slower the canopy is a bit, you know, not as um, vigorous. And the shift from front pallet focus for irrigated vineyards for us to back pallet structured wines is quite significant. So it does, I think what I battle with most is it becomes expensive and I don't want wine to become, you know, too luxury. I want it to be something that can be enjoyed over the table. But if we're doing it in a really sustainable way, it becomes a lot more expensive. So how we battle with that is a you know a bit of a battle internally for us, how we deliver that and how we structure the business to reduce our margins on cheaper wines almost to, to make it accessible. And I don't want sustainable farming to be a luxury item. Like I think sustainable farming, we need to make accessible to everyone. I mean, how many of your vineyards do you own? Because you've always bought from growers as well, haven't you? Yeah, it's uh, the old sort of business model of buying fruit for a number of years. Then we um, we had a really wet year in 11 and five growers in one year said, right, sick of it, you can do it. And so we took on five vineyards in one year. Uh, we So we've got 30-year leases now, though, on pretty much everything we farm. Um, and we own one vineyard in the Yarra Valley and one vineyard in deep southern Tasmania in the Huon Valley. But it's been a... Oh, gee, it's hard when you're leasing vineyards and trying to make the right decisions for the long term. Mm. Even a five or ten year lease probably doesn't lend itself to 
for, for, for my mind, making the right decisions for long term. So we really had to revise that. We lost some key vineyards. We had some relationships that didn't work out that well. But where we are today is that everything is now 30 years plus. And that's a pretty amazing weight off our shoulders in a way that we can make decisions that might take 5, 10, 15 years to really flow through, but it's, it's the right way. And you've now got this Summerhill Road site as well, haven't you, which is the vineyard you own, right? Yeah, I've been doing some research, yes. Um, <laughs> yeah, this is a, a part of the valley in the southern southeastern end and it's on incredible old clay soils. It's got um, an amazing array of aspects, elevations, and I think we've got some wonderful decisions to make about what we're going to plant, but we've got some high density at 12,000 vines per hectare. We've got low, so you talk about Dirk Neeport. I remember him, this this notion that he could taste different cordon heights and occasionally he'd say, that looks like high cordon fruiting wire and be like, oh, my gosh, don't say that. And he'd, you know, more often than not get it right. So I guess probably one of the things we're renowned for are a lot of trials and, a few years ago, we dropped a, a couple of cordon heights by 20 centimetres. And now that we recognise the fruit tastes completely different, after a few years, we sort of noticed it. So that's led to us now every new planting is either 40 or 60 centimetres off the ground, yeah. which, you know, when we're struggling to get pickers and and uh, staff to help there anyway, this is only going to confound matters for us when the, the uh, industry standard here is more likely 900. Mm. Um, but the, the fruit quality is completely different. And, and tell us a little bit about cover crops and the way you use those and, and mulching. Is that part of your the way you're dealing with climate change in a way? Yeah, I just think they're really resilient plants. And um, we do have phylloxera in the Yarra Valley. And I think one of the key you know take-home messages with phylloxera here is we've seen some incredibly old vineyards farmed with a lot of water mm. and they've been pulled out and they've had really shallow root systems. And these really shallow root systems are sitting there because they're being fed too much water, in my opinion. So mm. if we can pull back on some of our inputs, improve soil health, um, cover crops are great at building, you know, soil structure, helping with water filtration. We've got a history of dry farming in the Yarra Valley. Mount Mary, Yarra Yaring, all these amazing producers still do dry farming. They're in the minority, but they get an, I think they're still the best producers in the region and, and it's for a reason. Mm. And how, just tell us about how you describe your winemaking style. You've talked a little bit about it, the influence that that, that Dirk had on it, that uh, that John Middleton had on you. Low intervention, terroir focus. I mean, that's kind of part of it, isn't it? How would yeah. you describe it? It's very low tech. I think with a lot of attention and care to give the wine or the fruit space to go where it needs to go. Mm. So we're not setting up each parcel with the view that we're going to make this sort of wine. But if we can be clean and around the wine and give it space, I think then it can go where it needs to go. I've, I've got two kids and I'll talk about it fairly often that parenting is a lot like winemaking for me, that you've got to give a little bit of room for the, you know, the personalities. And if you're trying too hard to dictate it, then eventually they'll buck you off and, you know, make life challenging down the track. So I think it's better we give them a bit of room early and they might come out a little more balanced at the end. So, yeah, it's the, the parallels are fascinating. High risk or, you know, so much of the industry through the, you know, the last 20 years has, 
been built around trying to minimise risk. What if the ferment goes the wrong way? What if, so yeah. let's choose the yeast that has these attributes and the oak. And the, so we've got no new, no new oak in the cellar. We don't inoculate at all. It's really about just giving a little bit more room. We don't even really temperature control. We'll try to start cool, but everything runs its course temperature-wise. And I think for us that seems to be a pretty good result. Yeah, so you're controlling things, but very gently in a way, yeah? Yeah, and if we need to intervene, we will, but we're not going to, you know, I'm looking at the ferments out, outside right now and we haven't added anything for the last two weeks. It's mm-hmm. um, no nutrients, no enzymes, no yeast. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're, we're definitely trying to get everything right in the vineyard to minimise, and I know everyone says it, so it's not, mm-hmm. not new. It's actually just really old. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, how many wines do you make? I mean, Pinot and Chardonnay are the main focus, aren't they still? I mean, have you lost count? I mean, I know you've got all these experimental batch wines yeah. you're doing as well. It's a lot of wines. Um, it always comes back to why, doesn't it? Why are you doing it? I think the best producers in the world, for me, have always got a sense of curiosity. So where I love the journey we're on, I, I think I, if I look in my cellar, most of the wines I like to drink, I'm following a journey in sort of sorts and it's not about reaching the, the the pinnacle or the summit and saying this is definitively you know in our case who we are but i think the body of work is changing over time and hopefully being able to recognize that we're better understanding who we are and where we are and we're not just bad impersonators of the northern hemisphere where we've got an identity that we can be really proud of which is also an australian issue we've got such a you know, chip on our shoulder being old convicts that we we still struggle to say this is who we are and say comfortably without necessarily saying we're trying to be the best, but just this is who we are. I mean, how do you explain the quantum shift in the quality, particularly of Pinot and Chardonnay in Australia? Is it better clonal material, better winemaking, better sites, bit of a combination of all those things? I don't know. How would you how would you quantify it? I think there have been some great Pinot and Chardonnays made for 50 years here, but clearly really small producers where that's not going to change the face of the Australian industry. And maybe what has shifted is that we've now got enough small producers and the collection is enough to to warrant a little bit more of attention. Um, Because I'd say the great wines of 50 years ago would be equal to the great wines today of Pinot and Chardonnay. They were, you know, New oak wasn't a big feature. They were highly, you know, restrained wines when young and mm. their evolution is still something to enjoy today for, for a number of them. But it just was that there was so few and far between. Um, so, yeah, the critical mass, I think, is certainly from an international point of view why there's a changing face to, to that conversation. Mm. I mean, the only wines you make, I think I'm right in saying, from outside the Yarra, other than the Tasmanian wine, which you'll tell us about in a second, is this Riesling, the amazing Rieslings from the Strathbogie Rangers. Just tell us a little bit about the Strathbogie Rangers and maybe also about the Tasmania project you've got. Yeah, look, it's, um, I guess, on the back of Austria, which you mentioned, I, I really enjoyed the idea of coming back. And I was so heavily schooled on the Clare Valley Riesling, you know, mm. approach. But it was a very winemaking-driven approach as well. So um, I think what I saw in Austria was an embracing of skin contact and, you know, Emmy Canole and all these great producers who 
I remember when the EU grants came through in Austria and some people were getting bigger presses and bigger tanks and I went in to see Emmy and he was like, oh, I just bought this little little press over here and this tiny tank over here just to better look after the best parcels. And I thought that, you know, for me that just resonated so beautifully that you get extra money and it's not about being bigger, it's about looking after the best parcels as well as you can. So um, it was probably one of the... It was the only grape I came back and thought I've got to find the best home I can because I really want to make reason. And instead of trying to better understand a place, it was actually about celebrating a grape. And so that's that's what I did. I travelled around Victoria and I finally came across this region two hours north of the Yarra Valley. I don't think I'd ever, you know, really examined before, but at 600 metres elevation, amazing granite soils and found this old vineyard planted in 1982 and... Mm. It just spoke volumes. The granite resonated, thick skins, incredibly perfumed, had no idea what to do with it, but, um, you know, still don't. We still make four or five Rieslings every year because they all do their own thing. They tolerate they tolerate what we do and they come out the other side balanced. And um, I love the old vineyards, how they just tolerate us. You know, the farming, what we do in the cellar, the resilience is something that young vineyards probably don't quite offer up to us. I love that idea of an old vineyard tolerating you. Yeah, I, we, we've, we, we inherited a couple of really old vineyards farming-wise and I remember going in and mulching and doing all of these things and after a while I just felt a bit silly because it really, they would, they would this one vineyard in Westburn, it was so disease-resistant, it was drought-tolerant, it had been neglected for 10 years and it was almost like it just came back and said, look, if that makes you feel good, you can do it. And it was, it, it was so humbling and it has altered my, my take on how we farm because I think when you get them really established, they just don't need us quite as much. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about the experimental batch range because there's a Gamay in there. I think you've made some Italian grape varieties. And is this all about satisfying your curiosity that you mentioned? Yeah, and I also think it's about setting, yourself, setting us up for the future. Um, we've got a big focus on Pinot and Chardonnay, but we also have very small plantings of Grenache, Menthea. Um, we've got Blaufrankisch, Gruner, Aligote, Trousseau, Gamay, you know, but a half acre of each each planting, what it does give us is a chance to play around with it, make some terrible wines, make some really, you know, powerfully interesting wines, but we also now are better equipped that if, we see a bigger shift in in the seasons and and the region shifts in a certain direction that we've got a better you know better grasp of how we might want to proceed. How do you think the Aussie is going to develop over the next twenty years? I mean, we've mentioned the days you were at Southcourt when that was still kind of sunshine in a glass time, wasn't it? And I think it's obviously shifted a long way from there. Climate change is a, is a big factor. How do you see the industry developing? Do you think it's you're going to still see small people setting up the way you did at the start or is it going to be more consolidation? That's a really good question because the Yarra right now there is consolidation. Um, but at the same time, this industry invites a lot of people to go and, you know, start something and to dream and they get infected by drinking a good bottle with friends and various motivations lead to them thinking they want to try something. And Mm. that is a fantastic thing because we all need to dream. 
the world needs more people who want a dream and are prepared to put you know put themselves on the line so i don't think this industry could ever end up being one or the other and i think you know the australian industry is exactly the same and you know the tasmanian project for us um in the Huon Valley is made up of so many small producers that I know big, so, some of the bigger companies have gone down and they just can't get the land size to satisfy their needs. And it's created this fantastic small little network of small producers. So I think the landscape will actually affect a lot of, you know, where investment and, and business opportunity sits. And I think the country is big enough and spread out enough that both will prosper. Are you going to see more people moving to what were once considered marginal areas, do you think, with climate change? Yeah, I think it's happening without wine being the driving force, although in some cases it certainly is. I know a number of people in the Yarra Valley have bought land in Tasmania to retire to, and um, that could be a population consideration as well, and it's incredibly remote and beautiful. So, um, yeah, I think I think there's... Uh, a big push to explore regional Australia for a lot of people. Mm. You mean in winemaking terms or in, in lifestyle in, terms? In every, in every sense. Yeah. So, so mass population shift to Tasmania. Mm, maybe. There's a lot of investment down there. It's pretty amazing. Yeah. You didn't mention when did you buy your land down there, the, the vineyard there? Yeah, I bought it in, I think, 2008. 18 the banks wouldn't give me any money it's the classic we won't give you any money unless you've got land and land was still cheap down there and i was really challenged by um some of the leasing arrangements i had at the time here and and some of the climatic considerations so it was a, a pretty amazing opportunity then of course you buy a small bit of land and the banks are happier then to loan against it and i was <laughs> then able to buy a bigger block of land here but um yeah there were a number of factors why tasmania appealed um, it is a pretty special part of the world. I, I love your business motto, which is no bullshit, honesty always. I mean, just tell us, is that unusual in the wine business? I mean, do people lie about things? Surely not. Never. <laughs> no, not in this industry. No, I think, you know, like a lot of things we do, it's mainly an internal thing. We just want to keep everyone honest here that we can put every idea on the table. We can challenge each other. We can... We've got this amazing collection of people who could be choosing a much easier path, earning a lot more money, and yet we attract these people who believe in the path we're taking and if we're out hand-hoeing, if we're whatever we're doing, it might be the hard way but they believe it and that is an incredible thing that we've got right now and, um, you know, it hasn't always been this collection of people but, gee, if we can... If they feel they can pull me up on things and put things on the table and ideas, that is the the most fantastic situation we could have. So, um, yeah, like most things, it's an internal commentary more than external. Mm. And I love the fact that you describe yourself as still being like a kid in the playground. You know, you're nearly 50, although you don't look it, obviously. <laughs> <fast>. <laughs> Are you still having fun? I mean, is that kind of childlike wonder that you may be seeing in your own kids when they were younger? Is that still important to you, that sense of discovery? Oh my gosh, it's uh, it's paramount to the whole to the whole game. Um, I do get peers that say occasionally, "When are you going to grow up and treat it like a proper business?" And you know, I sweat on it a lot. There's a lot of mornings where I wake at five and can't be- get back to sleep because you know the the reality of the business. But the dreaming and the the 
trials and the the learnings are so steep. And you talk about kids. If if your kids can't see that you're, you know, not just enjoying it, but that you're growing with it, mm. you know, that's one of the greatest gifts you can give to the kids. But it's also the best gift you can give to yourself. Yeah, and are the kids going to follow you into the wine business? Are they all? How old are, how old are your kids now? <laughs> oh my now? gosh, I doubt it. They they're ten and twelve, and they've made they both made wines um, more out of just you know they're stuck at the winery they've got to do something um i've got no expectation you talk about dirk and his boys and i think i love the idea that they've got to go off and find their own way we had a lovely george brower riesling tonight and i think of Teresa who went off and you know was a dancer for what a decade or whatever and finally came back if if they're coming into the business because they're expected to i think you probably lost the essence of it already. So I'd prefer to give away the business or close it down if it wasn't for them than to apply any real pressure. But um, we will see. Yeah, you wonder sometimes that these businesses have been going since the 15th century or something, you know, and you're born into this business as a kid. You know, you, have you got any choice? I mean, you haven't really, have you? I mean, you're brought up where knowing what your life's going to be from age three, I'd have thought. Yeah, it's an interesting mindset, isn't it? I mean, I like my, my daughter who's the 10-year-old. We had a wine event last year and I got a, I said, look, it was down the coast and I said, well, we could have a nice weekend away but you're going to have to pour some wine on a Saturday. And she said, yeah, okay, let's go. And I thought she's never done anything like this and I kept myself busy as the first couple came up to the table. And I thought, what is she going to say? And she said, well, our wines are a bit different. We care about our soils and it's more like listening to a record uh, a live recording on vinyl rather than a, a studio on Spotify. And I thought, well, she doesn't have to come into the industry, but, gee, she's got a good grasp of it. And but she's got I, it. I was, Yeah, it's better than any marketer I've spoken to. So it's, um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm happy, happy with that. I think it's a brilliant description of wine. Last <laughs> thing, just tell us how you get away from wine. You've got this unbelievably busy business. Do you have other interests outside wine that you escape to? Yeah, look, I mean, I think friend, friends, music, travel, but family's pretty important. Kids, it's, uh, yeah, I, I get away, but it's always tapping me on the shoulder. It's hard to say no to a good glass. I don't know how people do Feb fast and things like that. I probably should, but yeah, it's it's still too enjoyable. Is probably what it boils down to. I think that comes across in everything you say that you're actually having a great time, and I think yeah. that's a fantastic inspiration for all of us. And it's there in your wines as well that you're having a good time. Thanks, Tim. Listen, it's been a pleasure talking to you, and I hope to see you very soon, mate, either in Australia or in Europe. See you soon. That'd be great. Thank you. If only all winemakers were as sensitive as Mac. What a fascinating man. Next week on Cork Talk, my guest is the Chilean terroir expert, Pedro Parra. Join me then. Thanks for listening to Cork Talk. If you want to read more reports, articles and tasting notes by me, go to my website, timatkin.com. You can also follow me on Twitter, at Tim Atkin, and on Instagram, at Tim Atkin MW. See you next week.